Well, hey, good morning. My name is Evan. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. Alan McCullough is our lead pastor, and so I am not him, so I'm sorry if you are looking for him. He's actually, um, he has the privilege of being able to preach at the church that sent us out, Restoration City. So he is with those brothers and sisters this morning, and, and so we, are, we miss him, but uh, he's out there preaching uh, for uh, John McGowan and his church. And so I know that's just a gift for Alan to be able to be there with that body uh, and just preaching to them and encouraging them with the word. But this morning, I am grateful to be able to be with you all. We're going to be in the book of James. So if you have that, I encourage you to open up to James chapter three, verse 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. And what I want to do is I just want to quickly recap. I haven't preached in a couple weeks. And so each time I'm preaching, I'm walking us through verse by verse all the way through the book of James. And so I just want to give just for our start just a brief recap of where we have already traversed in this letter from James to the Christians of his time. One of the things I've been saying about James is James is all about dirty theology. And what I mean by that is just very simple. I think faith is depicted in the scriptures very much like a pair of shoes would be. And we wear our shoes out, right? And our shoes, they get dirty. They get mud on them, right? And so that's the same thing I think James is saying about our faith. Hey, our faith in God is meant to be lived in. And therefore, it's going to press up against all sorts of things that life brings, i.e. it's going to get messy at times. And our faith in Christ is meant to handle all sorts of things that the world brings forth. And so dirty theology has kind of been the way um, I've wanted to kind of focus this whole time. And so James is focused on Jesus's words. And I said this at the very beginning of this, the, the series, that James is really, James is Jesus's half-brother. So he knows Jesus really well. And if you have any siblings, you know that it's probably hard to look at a sibling who's now the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I imagine as a sibling myself, that'd be a tough moment to start going, wait, weren't you my annoying kind of brother? And now you're, oh, but so James is now put his full faith and trust in Jesus. And he remembers Jesus's words right before Jesus ascended into the heaven. And he says this, Jesus gives this command. He says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. And so James, I think, is picking up in this whole letter of saying, hey, what does it mean to obey all? all that Jesus has said for us. And this whole letter is so practical. And so he gets into not just what we need to know about God, knowledge, which we need to have, right doctrine, right theology. That's really, really important. But he says it's so important for you and me that we actually live out from what we know, that how we live, how we behave, the things that we do really, really matter. In fact, James in chapter two says, faith without works is dead. And so we've already talked that. If you've missed that, I encourage you to go back. But last time I preached, what I got to preach on was the very beginning of chapter three, and it's gonna get us right up to where we are in the text this morning. But last time I got to preach in chapter three, we saw that words are really powerful. And what we're gonna see today is that this is gonna be a continuation of James' argument from what he started to say that, hey, words, your mouth, it's really powerful, and your mouth has the opportunity to show whether you worship God or you worship yourself. 
And so James is gonna continue that thread here and he's gonna say, as we saw that time, that our words either bless each other we can encourage each other, or we can, our words can burn. They can, they can affect each other in negative ways, and it's like a fire that sets the forest ablaze. Our mouths show who we worship. And this sets us up today to look at our text, and what it's gonna show us today is what does it mean to have the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above? And he's gonna contrast that to what is the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of below. And so this is going to see, show that our mouth has symptoms of what's really going on in our heart, and James is going to aim at our heart. How do we live? Is the wisdom from God the thing that guides us and directs us, or is it the wisdom from below? Read with me in James chapter three, verse 13, and we're gonna read through chapter four, verse three. James three thirteen says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first, it's pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Father, we've already lifted our voices to you in worship and through song, and through the reading of your word, and being directed, God, to your throne. And so, Lord, this morning, I just simply ask, as we continue in that worship this morning, as we sit under your word, God, I pray that we would continue to be drawn to look to you. And Father, as I've said over and over again, Lord, I do believe what James has to say to us is simple, but it's not easy. And so God, where we need conviction in our own hearts and minds today, Father, I pray in your grace and in your mercy and in your gentleness towards us, God, that we would repent where we need to repent, where we've sought the wisdom of the world and not yours. And God, I love that by your kindness, you lead us to repentance. And so, Father, I know that that would be a continued worshipful moment for your children to confess to you, Lord, areas that we just continue to need your help. And Father, that that would delight your heart to give us wisdom from above. I ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. I want to begin 
by really just setting up what I think James 13 is couched in. And what I mean is we have to go all the way back to the beginning. You and me, the audience that James is writing to, is all caught up in the same cosmic struggle. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know this, but if you're not and you're new, I hope this will be helpful for you as like a macro view for the redemptive story of the Bible through Jesus. All the way back in the very beginning, we get a picture right away of what God is doing. And it's really interesting. All the way back in the very first pages of the Bible, we see God is at work doing something creating, right? If you read the Genesis account, immediately you just see that God, it just starts in the beginning and then God starts doing stuff. And at the end of him doing stuff, he looks around and he decides, I want to share in all these things that I've done, all these things I've created, I wanna give that to humanity. So he creates Adam and then he creates Eve. And there we see the first human relationships ever along with the intersection of the relationship with their creator, God himself. Now, some of you understand that. But that is the context that we need to start with because then just a few short verses later, something happens, something changes that is so vital and so important and begins this cosmic struggle that we are in the midst of today. And so what we see is God gave Adam and Eve instructions not to eat. He gave them wisdom. Gave them wisdom. Don't eat of the tree of knowing good and bad because he knew that if they didn't obey and follow his wisdom that it would kill them. That's what he says. He gives them the warning, which would be wisdom again. And so what he does is he says, listen, I want to keep you safe, and I want you to enjoy all of the right things that we have in our relationship to one another, God to human and human to human, Adam and Eve. And all was good, but Eve, when she was deceived into doubting, what was she deceived into? Doubting God's wisdom. Did he really say that? Her perspective of God's wisdom and instruction had been changed. And I submit to you that the scriptures speak that that's happened to every single one of us from that point on, that we don't see God's counsel as wise. In fact, we see it as limiting. So living with the wisdom above versus the wisdom of below is going to be this cosmic struggle that you and I are all a part of here today, just the same as what James is writing to, because he's writing to people in the church just like you and me. She craved the tree's forbidden fruit and saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. You can read Genesis 3, 6 on the screen behind me. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and we're gonna come back to this in our text, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate Adam and Eve take this fruit and all of a sudden what gets entered into all of our contexts, you and me, James' letter and his audience too, is isolation, fear, and death began reversing the wisdom of God that he has given to you and me. Therein lies the struggle. God's wisdom is now at odds with the world's wisdom. 
So the question today is simple, but not easy. But do we trust God? That's what James is getting at. We pick up in James' letter and we see this same struggle, the continuation of the struggle to trust God's wisdom. And for James, wisdom from above is this. It's understanding that God is good and he's in control. And therefore, life is meant to be lived under his control. Wisdom from below means you are in control. You are the one that is seeking to control your circumstances and your situation. And therefore, everything that you think is right and good, you want to squeeze every last thing out of life because it's up to you. More simply, wisdom from above looks to God. Wisdom from below looks to oneself. There's our context so verse 13, James is just asking a rhetorical question. He immediately comes to the, it'd be like this. Who here is wise? And the thing would be, maybe someone would raise your hand. Is anybody? All right, here, let me ask you guys. Who here is wise? No one is raising their hand. Okay. What? No? All right. So no, nobody's raising their hand. Right. So here's the thing. J- James is really asking a rhetorical question because, right, the, the audience would know as they're reading this, like, hey, who is wise? Like, ooh, me, 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 me. It's like, okay, great. Then James is going to go, great, let me evaluate the legitimacy of your belief that you are wise. James is writing to you and me today, Grace, so to reflect on our own lives. Do we consider ourselves wise? Do you? How would you answer that question, friends? We've said this over and over again, that those who know God love God. Those are wise people. Living according to God's ways with humility are the ways in which we show that we have God's wisdom. But verse 14 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. James shows us very quickly the contrast that he's gonna show. Wisdom from below versus wisdom from above. Wisdom from below is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. (laughs) He doesn't mince his words and continues to say, here's what it also is like. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. James is showing us that wisdom from below is characterized by being focused on ourselves. The very thing that we saw in the beginning of humanity that we are tested to begin. Do we believe, do we look to God, or do we look to ourselves? And all of these things that show wisdom from below are gonna be focused on you and me. These characteristics show a rejection of how God has called you and me as followers of Jesus to live. Remember, James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to people who have no understanding of what he's saying. He's saying that this is happening in the churches that he's writing to all scattered across Judah, Judea and Samaria in the ancient world. And so it says to you and me today that this is something that we are meant to take very serious and to consider. I want to submit that earthly wisdom is sometimes really hard to 
discerned, though. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Like, in one sense, it's going to be easy, and we'll talk about that. But there's another sense in which, in the church, this is really difficult to see. And I was just thinking about some of the ways that this plays out in spots that we're not always aware of right away. And I was thinking, first and foremost, you go look at church leaders, the church, especially in our context today. How many stories have we seen over and over again of church leaders meant to show the wisdom of God, but in fact, have been living by the wisdom of the earth, of the below. I remember and Ravi Zacharias, not too far back. I remember being shocked when I first heard about this, shocked. I've read this man's books and I was so, so thankful for what he's been able to offer into Christian thought and theology and things like, and apologetics. So, so helpful. And this is what I'm saying. I think James is going, whoa, let's be slow, guys, not to just give our, all of ourselves a pass on this because even a man like that who we would revere, the veneer that we saw underneath showed this was a man seriously frauded with selfish ambition to continue to live in ways so contrary to God while still speaking for God, right? That was hard for, some people saw it, but it was so easy to push down because no, no, that can't possibly be true. And so I just use that as an example. There's so many ways that we can rationalize all sorts of sinful behaviors because, hey, we might be seeing good things from afar. It can be subtle, Grace Hill. And this isn't just true of church leadership, but any place we find ourselves, and I'm sure for each of you in your contexts, as you think about your reality and where you live, have you had bosses who have claimed Christ and then you see something so different? Have you seen in churches? Have you seen in your community groups? Have you seen in your family things that you're going like, man, this feels weird. They're saying one thing, but they're living by another. This is the thing that James is saying. Listen, it can be subtle at times, but hey guys, it happens all the time, which is why James is bringing this warning. And so though I said it is hard at times, James does give us two clear ways of discerning that fruit. Do you see bitter jealousy? Do you see selfish ambition? Wisdom is from below is set on ourselves. So eventually, we find the end of what someone was aiming for, right? James doesn't mince words here. He says it's demonic. Remember in Genesis 3, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to look away from God and what happens? God knew it would cause death and it would lead to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And I wanna come back to that because again, I think that helps us. He wanted to have Adam and Eve take their eyes off of God and put them on themselves. And listen, it's appealing for you and me. This is not some like, what in the world, Adam and Eve? How could you possibly do this? It was something that was appealing. So you and I know what that probably looks like in our own context. Hey, this would be really good. Just, just take your eyes off it for a second. Yeah, I know that God said that, but this is, okay. this is still good. Hey, hey, right? That's the context we see. Eve and Adam, they saw it was appealing. And Eve saw the offer from the serpent. And she didn't slow down enough. And she, she made a decision to go after what she wanted. And she literally goes, I want to be wise, but I need to do that apart from God. 
And Grace, I just think we should slow down for a few moments this morning. It's God's word and it's profitable for teaching and for rebuke. I think we should ask this question in the quietness of our own hearts this morning of where are we tempted to do the very thing that Eve did in Adam? What looks appealing to you in your life that you're just going, God, I don't want to wait for you. I don't want to trust you in this path. This is not the path that's leading to something that I want. There's another path that looks more appealing. I just want to, I know this is a sermon but I just want you to take just a few moments and reflect right here, right now, is where has it been desirable to seek your own control? Maybe it was this week or this month or this year. Maybe you've been in a season where that's been the case for you. Just take a moment. I just want to give that to you guys here, just to reflect on that. Seeking control in your world rather than submitting to God's control. we look at chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 for some of you it may not have been so easy to find where this has been true for you but perhaps this will be another helpful question to stir up places where we're looking for the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom from God. James says in chapter 4 verse 1 he says what causes quarrels excuse me and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions my passions are at war within us. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Grace, so the demonic powers want to take our eyes off of God and place them on ourselves, and that leads to you and I immediately starting to question the trustworthiness of God himself. Is God really going to come through for you and me? My marriage, it's frustrating right now. I don't think I can change. I don't think they can change. And is there any hope, God? I don't, I don't, I don't. Are you going to come through? My work situation is so daggone discouraging. You have no idea how difficult my boss is. He makes me, she makes me want to, not my fault, their fault. God, are you going to come through or how long must I? Do you have questions like that ever? I never get the recognition I think I deserve. I work so hard at my job. I work so hard in my home. I work so hard in my friendships. Does anybody see me? Or do I need to start doing something different? Anybody? Wrestle with those type of questions. Is God really good? Why does my loved one have cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why don't I have the relationship I've been so longing for? The demonic and the earthly shift of wisdom from below is showing again, proposing to us that God is not worthy to be trusted. And therefore, what's desirable is over here and we must take care of that. 
James doesn't want us to suck up the fact that we go through so many difficult things in life. He's not saying that. The point is he's saying true faith in God, no matter what, is going to be seeking to trust him. Wisdom from below puts our trust in ourselves. Wisdom from above seeks to put our trust in God. It says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Not long after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you only have to go a few short verses and you see that they had two sons. Read this account with me. It'll be on the screen behind you. Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now Adam and Eve, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now we take the shift into wisdom from above. What is that? Verse 17 tells us in chapter three, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Friends, one of the most unique things I've seen in this text is that almost every single one of these characteristics of wisdom from above are seen in how we relate to one another almost every single one. What are the two commandments, the greatest commandments that Jesus says there are? To love God and to what? To love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thus fulfills the law. James is saying all of these things, he lines up with exact clarity the same thing that Jesus is saying, that all of this wisdom from above that is focused on God will in turn be a focus and love for those around us. The first one we look at is pure. The Greek word means here unmixed, unalloyed, untainted, no impurity. It could point to moral purity, but it's more in this context has this sense of being free from the very thing, free of bitter jealousy and strife, pure. That's wisdom from above. First, it is pure. Our motive for seeking wisdom must always be to glorify God and to, to care and love for those around us. That is what he means by pure. Wisdom from above is peaceable. Again, this relates to you and to me, peaceable. Wisdom from below, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But wisdom from above, peaceable, seeking peace in relationships. This is no minor thing throughout all of the scriptures we see from husbands to wives to Peter and to Psalm 34. We must turn away from evil and do good and seek 
peace and pursue it. It's almost like if you were to go hunting. I don't hunt, but I imagine if you went hunting, you're supposed to hunt something and you're constantly fixed and trying to seek it. And this is that same thing. We are to seek, we are to go on the hunt for peace. How different is that from the wisdom from below where it seeks yourself at all costs? Seek peace. That's what James says. That's wisdom from above. The third thing he says is it's gentle. Alan did a sermon series on a delight to be around, and so much of that was from this text of Romans where it says God's people are meant to be a delight to be around. Primarily, this word gentle comes up, and it comes up in so many places, even as, as a qualification for leaders in the church. It means lenient, Gentle. We do not live in a society or culture that values gentleness. The church, friends, is meant, the wisdom from above is meant to be and shown in gentleness towards each other. And again, we've already talked about purity. It's not to despise truth or compromise truth, but it is meant to be gentle in its giving. How often do we see this gentleness requirement characteristic tarnished by God's very people? The next one is open to reason. I was talking with my wife and I remember just thinking like, gosh, this is so crazy because one of the renderings of it was like easily persuaded. And I was like, I don't wanna be easily persuaded. I know, no, 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 no. I got all these things to tell you guys and you need to hear from me. And then I was like, wait, oh, there's a... Oh, easily persuaded shows the humility before God and before other people. Shows a teachableness for each of us to go, maybe I don't know everything. Oh, maybe I'm not like God. How many of us are open to reason? Or how often do we wait to just say what we want to say to someone else rather than taking in and being curious to go, would you help me understand more versus just waiting to tell people all the reasons why they're wrong? God's people, the wisdom from God is willing to heed advice and counsel from other people. The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits, James says, and this isn't just meaning solely having compassion for the one who's suffering, but it's also showing compassion for those who have deserved, who are reaping the consequences of things that have happened in their life. Church, how easy is it for us at times to go, well, you shouldn't have done that. I say this because I know all the time with my kids. My compassion can be if they like, scrape their knee, but if they disobey me, mm-mm. Well, you deserve this, pal. And while that's true, there's a way of having compassion for them and going, oh, you've chosen the wrong way. I long for you to be in the right way. Christ was sent to die for our sins. Romans 5, 8 says that Christ died for you and me while we were what? While we were following everything he said, just knocking it out of the park? He loved us and died for us then? Yes, was that the one? When we were what? Church, say it. Sinners, enemies. What compassion God has for you and me. 
what good fruits and mercy we should show as well as God has shown that for us, right? If we see someone in need and we do nothing to help, what good is that? We saw that in chapter two, verse 16. In other words, godly wisdom is not just head knowledge, right? It's lived out in love towards each other, mercy and good fruits. Wisdom from above is impartial. It doesn't show favoritism or prejudice. We saw at the very beginning of chapter two, it sees all humanity, whether the color of their skin, every single one of us is image bearers of God. Therefore, there can be no partiality, no prejudice, no others, no exclusions within the body of Christ based on anything external. Wisdom from above is sincere. There's no hypocrisy. There's no living according to godly wisdom and then um, just this idea that, hey, we, we would speak about godly wisdom, but then we wouldn't live that way. That's hypocrisy. Something that I know is easy for all of us to fall into. But, but man, this idea of being sincere is we're humble in our faults, meaning we're quick to seek forgiveness. Sincere, unwavering, stable people, not tossed to and fro. So James has set up for us wisdom from below and wisdom from above. And I just kind of want to like land the plane today going like, well, so what are we to do with this? So I was reading these texts. I think it's very clear. I, I hope it's been clear. It's like, okay, James has been very clear that there's wisdom from below and there's wisdom from above and clearly we need to seek the wisdom from above. Like, how do we do that? James, James doesn't say really how. Like, you read the text with me and you're like, okay, well, so he's told us what it looks like, kind of what it does, but, but how, okay, how? How do we apply this? I really wrestled with this. But I just want to close by aiming in on verse 18 of chapter 3. James says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness. Grace Hill, James has been working us over and over and over again on what it means to live for God. This idea of sowing for righteousness here as we think about wisdom from above, how do we do this? How do we get it? I wanna just press one thing, like one thing we can say, well, we pray for it. I mean, James says in chapter one, ask God and he will give it. He's generous, he's a generous giver. Ask for wisdom, meaning we all need his wisdom. So there's one way. We pray, we ask God, hey, would you help me have your wisdom, God? But then the idea that he puts down there for the harvest, a farmer does not just reap. He must sow, right? She must sow to reap. And as I've looked at this text this week, one of the things that jumped out to me with verse 18 as we close and think, what are we supposed to do with this, James? Is to say, how do we sow 
the wisdom that God has given us from above. Well, I think in a very simple way, again, this is where it's simple but not easy, we look at how we relate to each other. How do we relate to one another in the church? Are we characterized by those characteristics below? Do we give each other pure truth? Do we know God's word rightly? Are we seeking to understand it in a way that is unwavering and yet also with gentleness and peaceableness to then encourage you and me within that? Are we sowing that, that we might reap the harvest of, in our relationships with each other, that what would grow from that is good fruit, encouragement, willingness to repent and go, oh my gosh, I didn't see that in my life before, but because of your unwavering commitment to God's word and your unwavering commitment to me and to love me with compassion the way God has loved me, hey, it's created an opportunity to bear something up in my life by how you have loved me and I have loved you. And I think the wisdom from above is meant to be sown, just like he says in verse 18, that we would reap a harvest of righteousness. So I just think about that, Grace, and I just want to leave that with each of you to think through, as I said earlier and gave us that spot. It's like, how do we relate to each other? Are we peaceable with those we're frustrated with? Are we on the hunt for peace in our relationships with each other? Are we on the hunt for peace within the world that we live in that is so chaotic and so filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Does it not make perfect sense that the one who came and died for us while we were yet his enemies wants us to live in a world so much so that we would be marked by gentleness and peace, not by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy or, or divisions So I wonder how different do we look from the world? I don't have evidence that would say that we look just like it in a good way. I pose that because James is talking to you and me. Just like he said with our mouths. What's going on in our hearts? What are we living from? My encouragement and challenge this week is to take this text and just apply it to all manner of your life. How am I with my wife? How am I with my friends? How am I at my job? How am I with my finances? How am I with people that I'm frustrated with? Am I showing the wisdom from above or am I showing characterizations of the wisdom from below? Heavenly Father, I just, just ask for your help. God, I know I ask it in my own life. And Father, maybe there's many here who feel the same way as I do as I sit under your word. But God, as I just read your text of saying, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, Lord, I just simply ask you to help us to fix our eyes on you, God. And I don't mean in a passive way, Lord, but I mean in a way that marks us to go on the hunt, so to speak, for all of the things that you've shown us that's pure, what is peaceable, what is gentle, 
that we'd be open to reason, full of mercy and bearing good fruits, impartial and sincere. Lord, would you help us to be this way? And Father, I pray that in our groups of community that we are a part of, Lord, that maybe we even ask others and we have the courage to even ask those close to us, hey, are there things in my life that you see where I struggle in, in one sense or in some way here that I might not be aware of? Lord, oh, what humility that takes, what courage that takes. But Father, I know your longing for us, as it was for even Adam and Eve, was to keep our eyes fixed on you. And so God, I'm thankful for the one who did. I'm thankful for the one, your son, Jesus, who was tempted in the exact same ways, even in the, the desert, Lord, to take his eyes off of you, Father, and he didn't. He perfectly fixed his eyes on the God the Father and sought the wisdom from above rather than the wisdom from below. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that we don't have to always get this right, Lord, that there's grace even for us as we want to live and sow this kind of righteousness and wisdom, God, and see it bear fruit. Lord, that there's our, you have grace for us today and tomorrow and until you return, God. Father, in that, would that just be the fuel for us to take steps to be people who live under the wisdom from above? Let's ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.